It's so good, uh, so good to be with you all again. I'm going to start us out with a word of prayer if we can, and then I want to jump in. Hopefully, uh, you're able to get um, some notes. Try to be as extensive as I could just to give you some material to take home with you, and let me uh, start us with a word of prayer. Lord, we're so grateful for your kindness toward us, uh, namely in the way that we um, see your kindness and grace and mercy in our Lord Jesus. Lord, we exalt you today. We're so grateful that you're high above all things and that we don't have to guess today what kind of God that you are or if you woke up in a bad mood. Father, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we bring ourselves before you because we need you. And Lord, we confess that we like wisdom and we search for it today and we search for it from your word. So we ask, Lord, that you would be generous in the giving of it. Help us to understand. Help us, Lord, to see your ways Uh, we pray. May it build within us uh, an understanding of who you are, and may it elicit worship from us to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we start, I want to just build an introduction, if I can. I I love this quote by Charles Spurgeon. I'm just going to read it to you, and then I want to uh, talk through Genesis chapter 3 very briefly. And then what I want us to do as we work through the, the whole of our time together is I'm going to build basically a, a, um, a basic introduction to the idea of the sufficiency of Scripture. And as we build this idea of the sufficiency of Scripture, its definition, try to understand it a little bit, biblical basis for it, I want us to finish our time together talking about the implications. Well, well why does this matter to us, right? That's really the point of this Sunday school time is is trying to see the beauty of the doctrine and why it matters on the ground, how it matters in our our daily life. Spurgeon says, says this, brethren, the truth of God is the only treasure for which we seek and the scripture is the only field in which we dig for it. In Genesis chapter three, you remember the story of Adam and Eve. Of course you do. That moment in time where the, the question is asked in Genesis 3 of the serpent, uh, or, or of Eve from the serpent, did God really say? What an important question. What an important question that is even for our time today. So many people ask this question of the scriptures so often with practicality in life. Does God even talk about that subject And often what happens, we find ourselves dismissing ideas or or, or things that we should be doing in life as if God did not speak about those things. Part of it has to do with we think we're so modern and our lives are so complex and we've moved so much more forward in technology and things like that, that how could such an archaic book speak to the issues that we deal with today? And we often ask this question, does God really say? Now, you know the result, you know the story of that uh, scripture and how it plays out in Genesis chapter 3 and the destruction that happens with the deception that we see which occurs. One of the things that I think is important for us is the evil one was trying to question the sufficiency of scripture, and what did that do? It was an attempt ultimately to undermine his authority. And listen, when you and I are disconnected from the word of God, we were intended to live by it and through the word of God. Why? Because God gives life. One lesson that I think is important for us to learn from Eden, from the garden, is that God's word is intended to protect you and your heart from self-destruction. So when we talk about this issue of the sufficiency of scripture, this is something that is uh, not a byline. This is a, a necessity for the way in which we think about 
life. Let me bring this down to reality for us. I'll give you a couple of illustrations. Let's say that you and I were a fly on the wall at an elders meeting. Wouldn't that be fun? And we're sitting there, and, and this is totally hypothetical, okay, is that uh, maybe, maybe one of our youth parents asks and, and says, you know, Adam, man, I, I, my, my kid has been wrestling with salvation. I'm not really sure, like, how I should, how I should go about this. Can you give me some insight? And, and Adam brings that before the elders, and they talk through it, and then they're going to give back some advice. And, and naturally what would happen is when we're talking about the issue of salvation, guess, guess what we're going to turn to? Everybody's going to have Bibles open, and, well, this is what God says. This is how we should relate the story of Scripture, who Christ is, and, and how one comes to faith in Christ by hearing the Word, and repentance is necessary, and all of this kind of stuff. But it's interesting, what if Adam, this is totally hypothetical, but what if Adam were to ask the question then and say, you know, we've been struggling in our youth department, and it's not going super well, Right? And we, we need to build our youth department. It's, it's not, and, and maybe Rick is like, yes, we need, to, we need to build our youth department. And so they start discussing this issue, and naturally what happens, and this would never happen in our elders' meeting, but hypothetically I want you to think through this because this happens in many, many, many churches today. Now a subject comes up where we talk about the growth of the church. You know what often happens in moments like that? As the Bible gets closed, it gets put aside, and what do we begin to do? I wonder what those churches down there that look really successful, I wonder what they do in order to grow these departments. You see what happens? You see, practically what happens, and there's no ill intent. They want to see, quote-unquote, the church grow. They, they have the idea of the, the right goal in mind. The problem is we dismiss ourselves from the sufficiency of the word to do the work that God will do because who's called to build the church? Christ. When we see about the sufficiency of Scripture, it is important and effective for every aspect and area of our life. Now, let's bring this down to you. Let's think about this in relation to some of the issues that you might deal with on a daily or a weekly basis. Let's say you wake up one morning, maybe your heart's pounding a little bit, you have a job interview or something of that nature, or something's not going well at work, or you have a disgruntled boss or, or something like that, and he's putting pressure on you or whatever. And things are not going well at home, and... You wake up one morning and, and you're overwhelmed with fear and anxiety. You know, it's interesting to me what happens often in those moments in our life. And here's the deal. It's not that life is not made up of lots of opportunities and lots of moments to fear. And lots of opportunities and lots of moments to be anxious. It is. But what do we do in that moment? See, oftentimes what happens, even for we who believe, even who, we who trust in the scriptures and we, we confess with our mouth that the Bible is sufficient, oftentimes what happens is we put the Bible aside as if the Bible has very little to say to us in moments like this. And we often go searching for another source of authority to give us information that we think is sufficient to deal with this emotional problem in life. You see, it begins to, to beg the question of the sufficiency of scripture, begins to beg the question, do we really believe that the Bible is sufficient for everything that we do in life? Let me give you a definition. Dr. MacArthur, very simple, brief definition. You can go to lots of other uh, commentaries and, and specifically um, systematic theologies. Dr. Frame has a wonderful definition. Wayne Grudem even has a, a very good definition of, of this idea of sufficiency. But here's a basic Description. By the way, if you've not read Thinking Biblically, highly recommended from Dr. MacArthur. 
and the faculty out at Masters. The Bible is an adequate guide for all matters of faith and conduct. Scripture gives us every truth we need for life and godliness. You see what he's doing? He's, he's demarcating the idea that the scripture is not ever to be put aside when we're talking about issues of life in the way that we, we live. Matter of fact, the Westminster Confession of Faith actually puts this in very clear, I think, and succinct terms. This is what it says. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. What we see demarcated is the idea that the the Scripture is absolutely sufficient for everything that we do in life. This is something that the church has held to for generations. But I think it's interesting that in the practicality of life, although we may confess that with our mouth and hold that in our minds, do we really do we really practice these things? You see, let me give you a basic understanding of what's happening today. A basic understanding of what's happening today is there's so many categories in our lives that we sort of separate out. Let me explain what I mean by that is what's happening often in our world is we have a tendency to compartmentalize man, right? So we say something like this, well, man has a body, so There has to be some sort of authoritative expression of those who are over the body and know the body well. And the man has a a soul. Now, this is not proper teaching. I'm going to give you an explanation. The the man has a soul. And and there are those who are experts in that particular area of life. And uh, we need to go see them because they're sufficient to deal with these issues. And then we have this spiritual aspect over here. And, you know, the pastor, he can be helpful. Uh, in dealing with the spiritual issues. Do you see what happens when we divide man and compartmentalize man in those ways? We begin to say that there are different authorities over different areas and aspects of life. We say, well, the pastor, he, he can use the Bible for all the things that are spiritual. But these issues of the soul, like in modern times, we would never go to the pastor for things like that because we have psychologists and they've done all this research and study and it's It's absolutely scientific, and we need to go to those people because they're the experts here. And then we look at the body, and excuse me, we say, well, we need to talk to the physician. Now, I'm not denying the fact of the physician, and we'll talk about that in a second. But what we have to see is we begin to lead ourselves in a direction to dismiss what's the, the, the end effect. We dismiss the sufficiency of the Bible for all of what? Life. Because now we compartmentalize things. And you see what happens in the progression of our secular society? What happens in the progression of our secular society is which of those categories do you think begins to shrink of which the Bible has dominion over? The spiritual. And so we begin to describe less and less experiences that we have in life according to the lens of Scripture in the area of the spiritual nature of man. And so what happens? The Bible now becomes less and less applicable to all these other aspects and areas of life, the way that we define them in modern terms. Now, this is critical. Why? Because I would ask you the question, what is it that you and I do that's not spiritual? Now, I'm not denying the fact that we we have a body. Certainly, we have a body. But you got to remember this. You woke up early this morning just to hear this statement. You're all going to die. All of you. I tell my wife all the time, baby, we can eat kale every day of our life and we will still die. 
Right. <clears throat> now, that's not an excuse, right, to eat chocolate every day, although that would be awesome if that were true. Uh, we should eat healthy, but the Bible has a lot to say about that, doesn't it? Right? The, the, the way in which we steward the body that we've been given, the Bible actually says a ton about those things. And I'm grateful for physicians that we can go to who have expertise in the areas of our, our biological beings, but that's not the sum total of who we are. And it's not as though the Bible doesn't speak to how we're supposed to steward that part of our being. So we have to begin to see man from a, a, a holistic perspective. Let's talk about some key passages. I, I do want you to turn to a couple of these. I've, I've tried to write out the passage in your notes, but I, I want you to turn to this one in 2 Timothy. I, I put the wrong uh, verse there. It's 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 through 16. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 to 17, actually. Now, I want to see if we can get the context here. Paul is encouraging his young uh, friend in the faith. He calls him his son in the faith. Verse 14, he says like this, and we're gonna, I'm going to try to run through these because I want to get to the implication. So I'm going to ask that you, I'm going to hit some of the highlights of some of these, but I'm going to ask you to go back and, and work through some of these passages because they are absolutely critical to understand how applicable the scriptures are for everyday life. And necessary, I would say. Second Timothy 3, hopefully you're there by now, verse 14. You, however, he's talking, Paul's talking to Timothy. You, however, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, talking about scripture, the Old Testament, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And here's what happens. Even modern Christians begin to demarcate certain areas of life to say, well, we believe the Bible is sufficient. And they'll use the same term. We believe the Bible is sufficient, but it's sufficient for the spiritual. Don't you hear the word? It says for salvation. You see, here's what happens. We often limit Paul's use of salvation to something like justification. I think the reality here of what Paul is talking about because of the context of where he's going is he's saying, no, salvation, I'm talking about justification, sanctification, what would ultimately happen in glorification, particularly sanctification, this idea of how we live in life, what happens after we come to faith. Paul tells us that we are to continue in Colossians chapter 2 to walk by faith in the same way in which you receive the Lord Jesus, he says, so walk in him. So we don't leave the sufficiency of Scripture after we've been justified. We, we need it all the more to be sanctified, to change, to become different, to be conformed to the image of Christ. The Word becomes necessary to give life. In verse 16, he says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. Look at what it's profitable for. wish we had time to flesh this out. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why is that so important? Just because you can be moral? No, so you can reflect the image of Christ. Remember, last time, if, if you were here, we talked about that, that the idea of being conformed to the image of Christ is what it means to be a healthy human being. It's what it means to be a, a normal, functioning human being. Why? Because Christ demonstrated in his life what humanity was intended to be like in relation to God. How we were intended to live on earth, that's what it means to be, to be normal. We have all kinds of secular ideas out there that try to tell us what it means to be a human being and what we think is normal and abnormal. The reality is God has already demonstrated that to us in Christ. That this is what humanity should be like. You were made and created to reflect my glory. You're made in my image. And 
He's given us his word sufficiently to accomplish that task. You see, we, we start to ask thousands of questions. You see, the Bible is sufficient. We'll talk about this in a second. It doesn't answer all the questions that you have. That's certainly true. It's, it's, we're getting ready to go on quite a long uh, journey from here to Florida. Aaron, apparently you just did that not long ago. It's quite fun. I'm sure you got questions like this. Are we there yet? And then lots of other questions. You say, okay, we're not going to ask that question anymore. Well, that it doesn't mean that this question cease, right? It's, it's all sort of, sorts of questions. If your kids are like some of my kids, is um, they worry about things as if they're the adults having to make sure all the arrangements are taken care of. And so we'll sort of like tell them our plans and then they're like, oh, but we got to do this. And what about this? And did you forget we're supposed to do this? And you're like, listen, just enjoy being a kid, right? Life is peaceful. You don't have to worry about that stuff. We're going to get there. Just like enjoy life. It's okay. But we're sort of like that with God, aren't we? Right? He has the detail. We don't need to know those things in life. He has the details sorted out. But we ask those kinds of questions all the time. We talk about the sufficiency of scripture. It doesn't mean that the Bible answers all the questions that we're curious about. But the Bible tells us the things that are necessary for us to aim at. And see, here's where we get confused about this. As we begin to deny practically the sufficiency of Scripture, or even question the sufficiency of Scripture, because we begin to believe the modern narrative that we need to know things that we don't need to know. Or we think things are necessary to know that God says are not necessary to know, and we begin to question sufficiency of Scripture. But, but the whole point that, that Paul is saying here is that Scripture is intended from God. I mean, you just think about that statement, right? The one who right now, you woke up this morning with a steadiness in life, knowing that the earth is still on its axis, it's doing its little rotational thing, and the Bible says he's holding it all in his hand. That God gave us a word sufficient to accomplish change in our life for the purpose for which you were created, to reflect the image and the nature and the character of God. It is sufficient. He goes on to say, and don't miss this, this is the purpose statement in verse 17, so that, what's the purpose of the scripture? So that the man of God, so we can't limit it just to justification or just to this minutia of spiritual things that we've sort of compartmentalized into some small closet so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for what? Every good work. Let me revisit the idea that there's nothing that you do that's non-spiritual. How do you know that? Well, you look at the, the defining statements like 1 Corinthians 10.31 or Colossians 3.17. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do all to the glory of who? God. If we take the mundane things of life and we say that even those things are intended to be lived in relation to God, there's nothing that you do that's non-spiritual. Everything that you do, even in the eating that you do, is to be done to the glory of God. In the way that you speak to one another, in the way that you respond emotionally, has all been given as opportunity to reflect the character and nature of God. There's nothing that you're not engaged in. That means that your work, right? Sometimes we have this discrepancy. We think, well, what Pastor Rick does is the more spiritual thing because, like, he prays and reads his Bible all day, Right? I mean, that's not really what he does, right? But, but you guys, you, you, you hear that dichotomy that happens? And like, I'm a, I'm a mechanic, so I go to work every day and it's not as spiritual. Listen, here's the reality that in everything that you do, whatever it is, you're to do to the glory of God and you're to do it to the best of your ability and it dictates your ethics, the way that you deal with people and how you respond to people and how you do the work that you do to be the best that you can with every ability that you have. There's nothing that you do that's non-spiritual. Everything you think, say, and do makes a statement about God. Everything. 
So the Bible now becomes radically necessary to guide you to do all that it is that you do. It makes you adequate and equipped for every single good work. You know, unbelievers don't even do anything that's non-spiritual. That's an interesting statement. The Bible actually says that the things that they're doing, although they, they look good on the outside, they're actually filthy rags in the sight of God. And the New Testament goes further to say that, that even the things that they do are building up for themselves condemnation before God. So we have to realize that, that our life is intended to be driven by dependence upon God's word. Remember what we learned in Eden. God's word is intended to protect your human heart from self-destruction. You see, the Bible has been given to us not just for the purpose of sanctification, and that's gloriously and wonderfully true, but for the purpose of sanctification, to walk in life, the way that you operate in everyday life, in the mundane moments of life. Do you, do you understand what happens? Most people look at life and they think about like the boring moments in the kitchen, right? Is this, does, does this moment really matter? All young mothers can relate to this, can't you? Because you're like, I'm investing myself in, and it feels like I'm living Groundhog Day every single day, right? And it's on repeat. And you're saying the same things that you're teaching your kids day after day and year after year after year. And it's like on repeat. Can I tell you that the truth of God's word that says that what you do in the mundane aspects of life, doing it to the glory of God, infuses radically meaning and purpose in everything that you do. This is the beauty of what God has done for us. Now we take a mundane moment that seems meaningless and forgotten and God allows us to invest in that moment to store up treasures in heaven. Do you see the beauty of that? What an amazing God. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but Peter summarizes this idea, and this is where Dr. MacArthur is building his definition from. His divine power, talking about God, has granted uh, to us all things, listen to the way he does this, all things that pertain to life and godliness. To life and godliness. Th this statement actually does two things that I think are critical. I think it, it exudes the beauty of the sufficiency of Scripture. But it also gives parameters for us to understand the depth and limit of the sufficiency of Scripture. Because the idea of the sufficiency of Scripture is not that it answers every single question that you have, right? The, the idea of the sufficiency of Scripture is that it, it helps us to walk for the reason we were created to walk, okay? He says this, he gives us a goal and he gives us a means, okay? A goal, something that we're aiming at, and a means to get there. What does he say? His divine power has granted us, uh, to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. What's the aim? See, here, what he does is he, he, we often dismiss this as if this is sort of a secondary or byproduct of the purposes of life. No, this is actually the prime product of all the purposes of your life. Think about trials, James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. For what purpose? Knowing that, the pur knowing that your trials will do what? Build within you this character. Paul demonstrates this in Romans chapter 5. A character that will not put you to shame. A hope that is built up in you. A perseverance, as James says in 1, 2, 3, and 4. You see, all of these aspects are intended to build within you and conform you to the image of Christ. Godliness is the goal. For what purpose? A few weeks back we heard... 
Dr. Ware speak on this issue. For what purpose? So that you, God conforms you to the image of Christ so that you can now enjoy the presence of God with him forever in heaven. What a beautiful thought. And that God is using all the moments of your life to accomplish that work. And what does that mean? That means that the word of God is sufficient to help you to navigate what your aim should be and the means by which you get there. Let me demonstrate the means for a second. So the aim is godliness. So, so anytime we get off on our goal of what we think is necessary in life, if it's not for the purpose of godliness, we will begin to question the sufficiency of Scripture. Anytime we accept some other idea about what the purpose of man is or what our goals ought to be, we will begin to question the beauty of the sufficiency of Scripture. The secondary point is on related to the means. We do this in the church all the time. You do this individually all the time. I do this sometimes, right? Where we see God's end goal. God, yes, we know that's what you want to accomplish in me. And then we sort of take up our own means to try and get there, right? We do this kind of stuff in the church all the time. But I want you to think about Matthew chapter 4. Right? The final temptation of Jesus. This is not in your notes. You can write this down if you want. But the final temptation of Jesus, it's really interesting to me. And it's always struck me as, as, as curious. In that final temptation where the evil one is, is showing Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth, and he says, if you will bow down to me, all the kingdoms of the earth will be yours. Now, as you contemplate that particular moment, that temptation of Jesus, what strikes me, I think, is, as strange is that the evil one is actually tempting Jesus with the will of God. Listen, think about Philippians chapter 2. Are not the kingdoms of the earth Christ's? Of course they are. Of course they will be, right? We see this in Revelation, that, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord of the glory of God the Father. That is absolutely true. So what is the temptation? It's the means by which he gets there. You see, what God has ordained was not just the end goal, but the means by which Christ will get there. What did it, what did it mean? That Gethsemane was necessary. Now think about that in your life is it's not, this passage doesn't just demarcate what the, the end goal is of godliness. He tells us the means by which we get there. Now, what's necessary for you to know the means about how to get there? The will of God. You see, now when you begin to see life like that, according to what Peter describes here in 2 Peter 1, 3, now we see the beauty of the sufficiency. Now you see yourself not as um, gaining favor because you lean upon the word. You see life as crumbles if you don't depend absolutely on the word. Now you begin to see the beauty of the sufficiency of scripture. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 says this. Well, let me finish this thought. <clears throat> we have time. I'm like rolling today. This is really great. <clears throat> we're going we're gonna to destroy the Johnson name after all, Aaron, and, and do this thing on time, okay? Uh, think about 2 Peter chapter 1 for just a second. If we begin to question the sufficiency of Scripture and what God has given, okay, notice what the claim is. His divine power is granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. If at some point we begin to demarcate a portion of life where we say God didn't speak to that in a way that was helpful and necessary, you see, what we begin to question is the character of God. Because all of us would claim that God is good, isn't, wouldn't we? we? We would absolutely claim that God in himself is good. He exudes goodness. He demonstrates goodness. He himself is good. But I want you to think about this. If the Bible is true, the Bible sort of dictates and, and demonstrates for us two sorts of wisdoms, okay? The first wisdom is God's wisdom that's laid down. We see very early on, and it's 
progressively revealed through Scripture, but, but everywhere we see God's wisdom is it always leads away from destruction and to life. What we see uh, entered in Genesis chapter 3, the passage that we mentioned, and then continues on as people try to find their way blindly is wisdom that's born from below. Solomon talks about this in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we see this idea of earthly wisdom or human wisdom exploited all over the scripture and and I want you to notice this constant theme and stream that flows throughout scripture and this is the idea that when we when we begin to follow human wisdom what does that lead to death and destruction you see here's the thing is that God would give us himself in the form of Christ and he would say okay now you guys you, you got what you need you got the ticket just figure it out from this point on Right, think about that. In, in the, the, we would lack the wisdom of God on how to then live life. What does it begin to question? It begins to question the goodness of God. That what God is saying is like, I'm going to give you wisdom, my wisdom. Colossians 2.3 says, uh, Christ is the wisdom. Uh, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. So I've given you Christ. That's really wonderful. Uh, that's probably good enough, and then we'll move on. No, he's given us his written word, special revelation. For what purpose? To live life. If God had not done that, if he limits himself in that way and he says, you know, for these things that are necessary in life, you need to go sort out human wisdom to be able to figure out how to walk with me or how to grow in me or how to, to achieve the purpose for which you were created, which is to be conformed to the image of Christ. He's actually setting us up for failure. So it begins to question, is God really good? Second Corinthians 9, 8 <clears throat> says this, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You see this idea exuded. In the field in which I work, which is biblical counseling, um, this, this question is raised all the time. People say, well, uh, the Bible is helpful for this thing and this thing and this thing, but it's really not that helpful. And, and the Bible doesn't even speak to how we should do soul care. I find that very interesting. Turn to Psalm chapter 19. Psalm chapter 19. The, the first part of this passage is talking about general revelation and the beauty of general revelation. And what often happens is, and I'm not, not denying certainly the fact of general revelation, uh, but in the area in which I work where we're dealing with people, right, and the problems that, that people are dealing with, particularly as it relates to soul care and counseling, um, what what often Christians try and do, we call this integration, where they're trying to, to implement secular theories of psychology in with uh, biblical ideas of theology, try to integrate. They say, well, general revelation helps us to understand man better. So psychologists study man, and then we, we understand how man is to relate to one another. What's the problem with that? General revelation is, is not for the purpose of revealing man. General revelation is for the purpose of revealing God. That's what the, the first part of Gen- or Psalm 19 is really about that the heavens are telling the glory of God, not the beauty of, of man. So, so we get this idea mixed up, and they, they'll say something like this. Well, the Bible actually never claims uh, that, it, that it has the curb on soul care, okay? That, that its job is to do the work of soul care. When I, I would argue that Psalm 19, verse 7, and following down through 10, actually demonstrates the beauty of the sufficiency uh, of the scriptures in dealing with our human problems. Listen to the word Psalm 19.7. Just this passage, Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect. And what does it do? The law of the Lord, that, that's a synonym that's used for the word of God. And you'll see six synonyms laid out in this passage. 
uh, as it proceeds forward. But the law of the Lord, the word of God is perfect. And what does it do? It restores the soul. And see, we've been working on that from a human earthly wisdom perspective for centuries. And we've not found anything that can truly restore the soul of man. Yet the Bible makes a very clear distinction. It, It claims that our souls, everything that we are, right, the the idea that exudes and makes us who we are, that is the domain of God, and he has given us his scripture to do the work that restores the human soul. He carries on and says the the testimony of the Lord uh, is sure, it makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. What does it do? It enlightens the eyes. It helps you to see, helps you to understand And he goes on, verse 10, he says, they are more desirable than gold, yes, much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. What a beautiful picture of scripture and its necessity and sufficiency to do the work that no earthly wisdom can accomplish. You see, the word of God can do something deeper in the human heart than any other thing known to man. The word of God is living, Hebrews 4.12 says, active, sharper than any two-edged sword division of joint and marrow, soul and spirit, thoughts and intentions of your heart. The Bible says you can't even discern your own thoughts and intentions. But by the power of the spirit, through this word, he can begin to see the depths of who you are. We've never made an MRI or any other type of imaging machine that can ever see the depths of who you really are. And nor will we ever, because the scripture has been reserved to help reveal that through the spirit the bible is sufficient romans 14 23 whatever does not proceed from faith is sin now i added this passage here because the bible doesn't just speak overtly about the sufficiency of scripture for life and godliness the bible speaks and has a constant testimony and this is one of the representations of that that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is an important, I think, clarification here because it's, the Bible is, is describing that everything we do is done from a position of faith in God or a dismissal of uh, faith in God and a belief in something or someone else. We look at somewhere like 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we see that um, there are only two options right? We're either trusting in Christ or we're trusting in ourself. We're building a case for the, for, the, for the growth of our own self. This is the way the culture tries to describe who we are. So whatever does not proceed from faith, actually the Bible says is sin. It gets back to my earlier point that everything you do in life matters in relation to God. So we can't just compartmentalize every aspect of life and say that, ah, those things are non-spiritual, so the Bible's not sufficient for those things. Well, in reality, the Bible is sufficient for everything that we do. Mark eight thirty six. I'll finish this section with this question, same question that Jesus asked, because this narrows the focus. It helps you to know which questions are most important. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he forfeits his own soul, or if he loses his own soul? So you can gain all the knowledge in the world that you want, but the moment that you stand before God, that will matter not. You'll be called, as, as uh, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 1 through 3, chapters 1 through 3, that you are a fool. Now, let me finish with this. The Bible is not a textbook, okay? A lot of people say, well, the Bible's not a textbook, so we just dismiss it altogether. I find that interesting because what we're doing is we're actually comparing what we think is good, systematized knowledge, and then comparing the scripture to that. 
and saying that the scripture ought to fit in the way that we as humanity have organized and systematized knowledge, right? Instead of saying, this is, how, this is what God says is important, a, a basis not of intellect but wisdom. He's not denying intellect and its importance, right? Although intellect, the puffing up of knowledge is actually prideful, builds you up, which is not the purpose, can be damaging for you. So he says this idea that, that we have to demarcate. The Bible is not a textbook. I would agree with that statement. But what's the problem here? The problem that happens is we begin to measure the scriptures by what we think is appropriate knowledge in the current world. Let me see if I can explain this. I put on your notes this idea of exhaustive or comprehensive. You see, lots of people describe, well, the Bible is only sufficient for this small portion of life because it's really not exhaustive about all these other issues that we are curious about in life. It's not really comprehensive. It doesn't tell us everything that we need to know about the human soul. Like, why do I wrestle with this type of stuff? And why do I struggle with these types of things? And I want to know the answer to those questions. So, well, the Bible doesn't give exhaustive explanation about these things. And so what do we do? Now, now think about the logic of what's happening here. We say, well, if we think the Bible's not exhaustive, if it doesn't give us all the information that we want, let's pause for a second, okay? Because in the way that you and I believe about Scripture, we believe it comes from a source. The Bible says that it was given as an all-inspired book to us for our good, okay? That was the kindness of God to us in him giving us his word. And we're talking about the source of this word. Can, can you just pause and think about the attributes of God for a moment? Think about who he is, that, that he spoke, right? And things come into existence out of nothing. Um, I find it interesting that we can do nothing like that, right? It takes you standing up and flipping on a light or if you have, what are the little devices called and you can speak and, and you can turn your lights on? The smart houses. What's it called? Obviously, we don't have those. Yeah, whatever, whatever. Like you command Amazon, whatever, to turn on your, yeah, Alexa, thank you. Unless you have Alexa, you can't do any of that stuff. You're just going to sit in the dark. My point is to contrast who God is versus who we are. And think about God speaking in nothing and light comes into existence in everything that we see. And we have a source of information that he says is necessary for you to live life. That God who sustains everything. Everything is upheld by the word of his power. Everything is held in the palm of his hand if scripture is true. Like all the galaxies of the world right now are in their place. Some and I a couple of weeks ago were in Maine and we were looking at the ocean and you can't help but think of the passage in Job where God says, yeah, this is where the ocean should stop. Like, that's the God that we serve. Right here on little part of earth in the whole of the galaxy, that's the God. And he's the source that gave us this information for how we should live. Are you getting the picture? And then we say, you know what? It's really not sufficient for all that we need in life. I think we should go to another source. Now, what other options do we have? I sort of think of it in terms of the way that, that um, when Jesus is talking about eat my flesh and blood, and, and he's like, are you guys going to leave with the rest of the disciples? And Peter's answer is what? Well, where else are we going to go? I sort of feel like that ought to be our response when people start saying, well, it doesn't answer this and it doesn't answer this. Well, what are our other options? We're going to go what we say is an incompetent source, an insufficient source, and then where are we going to look? Right? Even science is built out where it's not exhaustive and it's not comprehensive. 
It's changing every few generations in the way that we see things. Now, I'm not saying don't pursue knowledge. Don't hear that. But what I am saying is we should measure those resources that we think are competent by the same thing we try to dismiss the Scripture from. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to say, well, the Bible doesn't speak about issues of anxiety. So we're going to go to this guy who's got this sorted out from different theories over the last 150 years, and I think he's going to be able to help me to think through this. Right? Listen to the logic of that. We're going to leave... The God of the universe in his kindness who's given us his word to help us to navigate how to live life, to be conformed to his image. And yet then we're going to go to some other competent resource, comprehensive, exhaustive resource. I think we're dismissing the beauty of the wisdom of God. Listen to 1 Corinthians one twenty-five, And this is the whole portion of 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 3. He picks it up again in 2 Corinthians 3. Where he's contrasting the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. You get the picture of this contrast constantly with the wisdom that comes from God and the wisdom that comes from men. And what does the Bible say about it? The wisdom that comes from men in relation to God is absolute foolery. You can read some of the other quotes that I have there. I want to get to the implications. The implications. What are the implications if we divorce ourselves truly from the wisdom of God and the sufficiency of Scripture? Because this is where you live on the ground every single day. It's a threat to biblical authority. So what do you mean? I grew up in Florida. One of the one of the cool things to do is get up and go watch a sunset and you can hear the waves constantly crashing against the ocean. You see, sufficiency and authority are absolutely tied together. They're two, uh, they're two different sides of the same coin. They always go together. If authority goes away, the necessity and sufficiency of Scripture also goes away because now something else is its authority, and we run to it for help and hope. And so when we, when we dismiss ourselves away from the sufficiency and we start running to other things, guess what ultimately happens? Go back to that scene where waves are coming in constantly. Right? That constant barrage of looking in another direction for a source of authority to help us constantly. You know, it's, it, it's eroding all along, and it often takes a generation or two for it to happen. But what it begins to do is it erodes the authority of Scripture as well. This has happened cyclically through generations in the past. Even when the church was strong at times, we began to dismiss the sufficiency of Scripture because of modernity. And what happens? We see the authority of Scripture go away where we dismiss it as if it, it can't tell us what to do in life. Let me give you this picture real quick. Is the Bible a filter or a lens? One of the ways that some Christians try to uphold the authority of the Bible while looking elsewhere for sufficiency is they say, well, the Bible is a filter. We're going to look at all this data that's out there and we're going we're to gather it up and then we're going to bring the Bible as if it's, it's still authoritative. We're going to run it through it as a filter, Right? And some people say, well, and whatever's left over, that's where the Bible's sufficient. And what the Bible doesn't speak to, we're free to sort of come up with our own way to think about things. What's the problem with that? Who's seeing the data? Gathering it, interpreting it, categorizing it before we take it to Scripture. We are. So who becomes the ultimate authority? You do. We do as humanity. The Bible's actually a better lens than a filter. 
What does that mean? That the lens by which you see the data of the world ought to dictate the way that you categorize the issues and problems that we face. Why? Because when you do it that way, now you see that God has answered sufficiently for how we deal with those problems, with whatever it is that we that we see. Think of the difference between a person who is a believer and a non-believer standing up on a beautiful mountain. Do you think they see the same data? Yes. You think they interpret it very differently? Yes. Right? They believe that some cosmic event happened to create this beauty. We would, it elicits worship and awe in us as believers. It threat, threatens authority. The next thing is it threatens biblical obedience. I'll skip that one because we're running out of time. I want to get to two, two other ones. It threatens biblical revelation. What do I mean by that? It threatens biblical revelation. If we dismiss the sufficiency of Scripture, we start looking elsewhere for God to speak, right? Through some sort of feeling in life, superstitious circumstance that happens in life. We start looking elsewhere for God to, like, make something clear and make something plain when he's spoken plainly in his word the things that are necessary for life and godliness. And so what ultimately happens? We begin to base our obedience of God on some sort of whim that we feel in the moment, given circumstances. And our life becomes dictated by the authority of circumstances and not by the authority of God in his word. The last thing I'll mention is a threat to biblical faith, and I'll do this quickly. The implication when you divorce yourself from the sufficiency of Scripture is a threat to biblical faith. What do I mean by that? Let me give you a, a basic and quick illustration. I'll re- reference James chapter 1. You can go look at this if you want. When you think about, we have Siri today, right? Don't you love Siri? You love her, and you don't even know where she's taking you, but you trust her, okay? And so you say, hey, go wherever, and here you go. What happens when you get in the middle of rural Kansas and she stops working, right? That's uncomfortable, isn't it? You become disoriented because now you don't know which way is up and where you should go. Now, if that same thing happened and all the cell service was cut off and you're in your neighborhood, you're not freaking out. Why? Because you have an understanding of where you are. You're not disoriented. You understand the map, where you should go and how you should get there. That disorientation is is very similar when you think about the Bible. God has given us a way and a means to live. When you're disconnected from that, you become disoriented. The Bible says it like this. When we walk through trials of all kinds, we begin to question sometimes the goodness of God and what this is for. James 1, 5 answers it like this. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, that's an odd question to ask when you're going through a trial, but if any of you lacks wisdom, he says, Ask of God who gives to all men generously. Why does he say that? Because a trial begins to question the wisdom by which you live by. And when you find yourself disoriented, it's as as if you're disconnected from your source of wisdom and understanding. So what does he say later? Verse verse 8. He says, um, but ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts will be unstable. He gives this expression in in verse 8 where he says, you'll be a double-souled man unstable in all of your ways. You see, when you lack practicality in the sufficiency of Scripture, you become an unstable man in all of your ways. The Bible is intended to be practical because it reveals God, which is to elicit responses from you. And it is sufficient for every single thing we need. Proverbs 30. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words. And elsewhere we're told not to take away. Deuteronomy 4, 2, 
Revelation 22, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. God cannot lie. The truth that he gives you is sufficient for everyday life. Let's put it into practice. Make it the place that we go first to find out how we navigate life with hope and understanding for his glory. Let's pray.